Amen. Thank you very much. It's good good to see all of you. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to continue working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the benefit of working your way through books or reading through the Bible is that you get to hear what God wants to talk about. There are plenty of times that we want to talk to God about certain things. Uh, That's what prayer is about, right? And sometimes we even pick and choose what we want to read about in the Bible. But when we read through the Bible and preach through the Bible, consecutively we find out that God has a lot of things on his heart that he wants us to hear about. And so it's important for us to hear all that God has to say to us. And so 1 Corinthians 5 is what we'll listen to this morning as we seek to hear God speak to us. But it's very important when we read the Bible to understand some basic things that um, it's sort of like whenever you receive a text, <clears throat> if you don't know a lot about that person or what the frame of mind of that person is when they sent that text, you can read all kinds of things out of or into that text that aren't intended by it. And you can hear it in a way that it was never intended. And the Bible is the same way. If we don't understand the God behind the Bible and we don't understand the kinds of things that he is communicating to us, we can read a passage like what we're going to read today and walk away uh, totally missing uh, the heart behind it and what God is really saying to us through it. Uh, The Bible tells us that God is the supreme good and that he created us to be holy and happy. And those two things go together, holiness and happiness. And so God is holy and God is happy. He created us in his image to be holy and happy. And this passage will highlight the fact that if we try to find happiness apart from holiness, then it doesn't work. And that's why God calls us to deal with sin, because he knows we will never be truly happy apart from being holy. The Bible tells us that all of us naturally see life differently than God does. And we worship other things besides God, We don't pursue our happiness in God. We pursue our happiness apart from what God tells us is right and wise and good. And that's also highlighted in this passage. The good news is that we've already celebrated in various ways is that Jesus is the answer to our sin and the answer to our slavery to things that will never satisfy but will only bring condemnation. He's the double, double cure. He frees us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And that's also behind what we see in 1 Corinthians 5. So God calls us to trust his promises and to pursue love by obeying what he tells us to do. And that's also very much behind what we see here. So what I'd like to do is read uh, 1 Corinthians 5 for us and uh, help us to think about this passage in light of the question, what does love look like? Now, if you ask a little child, um, how do you feel loved? They would probably say, when mommy and daddy buy me an ice cream cone, I feel loved. Uh, What about when your your dad or your mom uh, disciplines you? Do you feel loved then? They say, well, not so much. Because that hurts. And they're telling me, no, when I want to do something, I really want to do. And so love um, can look different. 
Giving your child an ice cream cone is a loving thing to do, but also disciplining, disciplining your child when they need it in the right way is also a loving thing to do. And so let me read for us this chapter, and hopefully we'll hear the heart of God in this, and uh, God will speak to us in light of where we are today in our own lives. It says in verse 1, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually... I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among you or among yourselves. Father, I do pray that you'd help us to hear your word um, as you've intended it to be heard, and we pray for grace to see and grace to receive it, uh, rest in it, and respond to it in a manner pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this chapter is about Paul calling this body of believers in a city called Corinth in Greece. Um, calling them to deal with someone in their church who has some inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. When it says his father's wife, it probably refers to a stepmother. And we don't know if he married his stepmother or if there was some other kind of relationship there that was inappropriate. But Paul hears about it and he tells the church to deal with it. And so basically, he's saying, uh, as a church, you need to tell this man and this uh, stepmother, no, this is not good for you. It's not to the glory of God. It's not for the good of the church. You need to tell them, no, you're not to celebrate what they're doing. We live in a society right now that is arguing that love always says yes. 
If I want to do something, the loving thing for you to do is to say, yes, I celebrate what you're doing. Or if I want to be whatever I want to be, then society is now arguing the loving thing to do is to say, yes, I celebrate uh, whatever you want to be, whatever you want to do. And there seems to be increasingly no place to say no except to saying no. It is a sin to say no now. Whereas before, the idea was we need to say no to sin. And so it's like the, uh, the song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. We, we naturally, as, as sinful people, fallen sinners, and all of us are, uh, we're all looking for love. We're all looking for relationships. We're all looking for that which will satisfy our souls and make us happy. And we tend to think that whatever our heart wants to do, wherever our heart goes, that must be the path to happiness. And so we hear people say, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. And that's the argument from our society more and more is, just let me follow my heart and then I'll be happy. Well, the reality is, in parenting, you know, you would never tell your two-year-old, just follow your heart. Why? Because we know that our children are not mature enough, wise enough, knowledgeable enough to understand what is really best for them. And we know that they tend to be driven by just their impulses and their feelings. And therefore, the worst thing you can do is to leave them to themselves and just say yes, yes, yes. It's actually the loving thing to say no when appropriate. Now, as parents, we have to be careful of saying no to everything just because it's inconvenient or whatever. But when it's really an issue of right and wrong, when it's really an issue of uh, pursuing their good and protecting them from that which would not be good and would be harmful, then saying no is a very loving thing to do. Um, We live in a society where you have songs in which they sing about how can this be wrong when it feels so right? Because we're basing righting wrong on how we feel. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? And so um, little children would argue that way. Uh, Even big children like us often argue that way. And that's why we need God to help us uh, really navigate our own hearts, navigate the world that tell, tells us one thing or another. And so there are all kinds of things going on in our culture that are arguing for more sexual freedom. And we're becoming more and more like ancient Rome and the ancient Roman culture and the culture in which uh, these believers were in Corinth. Uh, that culture was very free, And yet there were some boundaries even within that culture. Because you notice Paul says that I've heard, in verse um, 1, he says, I've heard uh, there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Which means something's happening in your church that doesn't even happen typically in Roman society or in Greek society. You've You've gone even beyond that. And so... That's what was going on in this church is that they're living in a society where, um, for the most part, it's just yes, yes, yes. But even 
then there would be a point at which they would say no. And in our society, we haven't got to the point where we would say things like pedophilia are okay. But in Roman society, they were. And so um, that's what Paul is addressing here. And the, the Christians in Corinth were basically following the culture. But they were following it um, for what they would consider very spiritual reasons. There was this slogan that Paul will get to later in Corinth, um, which basically says, all things are lawful, all things are lawful, all things are lawful. And so they were following the culture in a sense, but they were justifying it uh, spiritually. But I've uh, ran across this week, I ran across an article where some Christians were highlighting the fact that uh, many years ago, back in the 30s, uh, a man who was not a, a religious person, but he was a, uh, a social anthropologist, wrote a book called uh, Sex and Culture. And he did a historical survey of six civilizations and 80 different cultures. And he tried to see if there was a connection between um, the sexual standards of the culture and what happened in the culture. And he, not as a Christian, but just as a historian, sociologist, anthropologist, came to the conclusion that the freer the society became with regard to sexual norms and practices, both before marriage and after marriage, the freer it became, um, the more corrupt and um, it became and it began to disintegrate. This is what he said. Increased sexual constraints, either pre- or post-nuptial, meaning before or, or after um, marriage, always led to increased flourishing of a culture. Conversely, increased sexual freedom always led to the collapse of a culture three generations later. So it wouldn't happen immediately, but once a culture began to become more free in terms of what it accepted before and outside of marriage and what it accepted even within marriage, it would eventually result in the collapse of that society. And he said, that's just the historical pattern that I'm noting as I look at all these different cultures and civilizations historically. He even said that as people began to adopt greater and greater freedom in these areas, that the people themselves were characterized with having little interest in much else other than their own wants and needs. So when that was happening on a societal level, people individual, individually were becoming more and more uh, egocentric, self-focused, and just concerned about themselves. And he said it actually resulted in people being less productive in terms of achievements, art, um, science, and all those kinds of things, that those kinds of achievements decreased when sexual freedom was greater, but they increased when sexual restraint was greater, that the energy was focused on those kinds of things. And he would argue that eventually the culture was conquered or taken over by another culture at some point because of adopting those freedoms. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up to say that even 
people who aren't Christians, who don't believe the Bible, can look at history and see that certain standards are necessary to prevent human misery and to encourage human flourishing. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. That he's saying what he's saying about what's going on in this church with this man who has his stepmother in an inappropriate relationship. And he's saying, this is not good for them. It's not ultimately for their happiness. It's not for human flourishing. And it's certainly not to the glory of God. And so he comes to them to address it. And so what he says in verse 1, he says, It is actually reported, which implies that everybody in the church basically knew what was going on. This wasn't a private affair. It was a very public thing. They were showing up evidently at church every Sunday. And uh, everybody knew it. It says that there is immorality uh, among you, and that word for immorality is the word from which we get our word pornography. It basically um, signifies just any kind of form of sexual immorality. But he says, the kind that's going on with you is immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, which means even the Gentile world in the Roman society, Greek society at that time, would have said no to that. Not that no one ever did it, but they would still have said no to it. And the church in Corinth was saying yes to it. He says that someone has... um, his father's wife, and as I've already mentioned, that could have been a number of different kinds of scenarios. He says, you have become arrogant. Picture there is puffed up, kind of walking around with your chest puffed out like, you know, we're so free that, you know, we can uh, indulge in anything and be okay. And have not mourned. And that word for mourning there is often used of mourning for the dead, implying that, This person is in a terminal condition. You should be mourning for them because they could be on the verge of spiritual death, if that's really what's going on here. There ought to be mourning, he says, instead of boasting, which is what he uh, talks about later on. He says, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Basically, he's highlighting the fact that The church in Corinth thought that to be free from the penalty of sin through Christ, and we are, if we receive Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, we are forgiven. We've sung about that. We are free from the penalty of sin. We don't have to worry about hell. We don't have to worry about God's wrath. We don't have to worry about getting what we justly deserve because Christ took that punishment for us. If we receive him and trust him, But these believers not only thought that that was the case, but they thought that also meant they were not only free from the penalty of sin, but they were free from having any restraints. Why should I worry about what I do? Because I'm forgiven. And Paul, in many places in the New Testament, says that's not logical thinking. Why isn't that logical thinking? Because Jesus said that he was a savior from sin meaning not simply from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin and one day from the very presence of sin. He saves us from sin, not just from hell. And so those of us who are trusting in Christ are trusting him to deliver us from sin, from what God says is wrong, uh, what God says is destructive, what God says will never bring us happiness. He came to save us from that. 
And the Bible makes it clear that there are some things that are truly right and wrong. Even though in our society, we've called that into question. And why have we called that into question? Because as a general rule, people say there probably is no God. And if there is no God, then there is no right and wrong. And there is no afterlife. And so therefore, it's just up to me to determine how I live before I die and just kind of uh, ride off into the sunset and go out of existence. And yet the Bible says there is a God and that there is right and wrong and that there is an afterlife and we need to prepare for that. Well, in verses 3 through 5, what Paul does is he says that I want you to do something about this. You haven't done anything about this yet other than boast about it. Now I want you to deal with it. It's interesting, one of the things that historically uh, the church has said is that you can find a true church when you find a church that preaches the word of God faithfully. It observes the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper appropriately, and it exercises church discipline. In our day and time, we would say a true church is one that has good music and a preacher tells good stories and there's an outreach to the homeless and there's a good children's ministry. Those are things, kinds of things that we tend to focus on more so than other things that historically the church has talked about. The word of God, the ordinances, and the importance of church discipline. Paul makes it very, very clear that it's important to address this because it's the loving thing to do. And as Christians, we are to be committed to love. Now, he mentions something in verse 5 that probably raises some eyebrows when he says, I want you to get together as an assembly and in the power and authority of Christ, I want you to deliver such a one to Satan. What in the world does that mean? Well, most people understand that as the idea of excommunication. You may have heard that word. But the Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of this prince of the air. He's the uh, ruler of this world. And so what does it mean to be delivered over to Satan? It means to be uh, removed from the church and left in the realm where Satan rules and reigns. But the purpose of it, he says, is for the destruction of the flesh. Now, some people think that means that they will begin to have health problems. And it does say later on that in chapter 11 that that those in the church who are um, doing the wrong thing with regard to the Lord's Supper were sick and some died. So some people say it might refer to something like that. Others would say it has to do with um, ultimately them being brought to repentance, just like the uh, prodigal son who goes off and lives just like he wants to live, and then he ends up in the pigsty. And then in the pigsty, he realizes that, you know, uh, my father's servants eat better than I do here. I'm going to get up and go to my father. And so it's that idea that basically you're turning someone over to the pigsty that they might return to the father. And so he calls for church discipline under these circumstances, which obviously he talks about, I have already judged this person. Now, a lot of people would say, doesn't the Bible say, thou shalt not judge? 
Yes, and that means thou shalt not condemn. But in that same passage in Matthew 7, it says that you're to examine yourself so that you can get the the splinter out of the other person's eye. It takes some judgment to know that there is a splinter in their eye. It also says, do not give um, your uh, what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. Now that's speaking figuratively, but it implies a kind of judgment in order to know when to do that or when not to do that. So the idea isn't that we aren't to evaluate whether or not things are right or wrong and whether or not someone in the church is actually living in sin in a way that is not good for them and not good for the body and not glorifying to God. Paul is obviously saying this is a case where it's clear that those things are true. And the implication of all this is very interesting when he says, I'm going to give them over to Satan. You need to put them out of the church. What does that imply? That implies that there is a kind of protection in the church. There's an interesting verse later on in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul talks about um, unbelieving husbands being sanctified through their believing wife and unbelieving wives being sanctified through their believing husbands and their children being holy, implying that there is something about living in a family that includes a Christian, that God's special blessing and protection is over that family. It's the same way in the church of God. Even if someone is just a professing believer but isn't a true believer in Christ, if they're in the church and a part of the church, there's a special blessing and protection there. And so Paul is implying that through church discipline, in some cases, to remove them from that is to remove them from that special blessing and protection, again, for the purpose of leading them to repentance for their good. Well, he goes on to say that not only is church discipline important for the person who's involved in serious sin, but it's also important for the people in the church. In verses 6 through 8, he talks about the idea of uh, dangerous leaven. The leaven is yeast. You put it to dough to make it rise, and it can be a good thing. But he says there's also the idea of something that can spread that's a bad thing. Um, some people might have thought, you know, Paul, what's the big deal? Everyone here isn't, um, you know, marrying their stepmother. Just this one guy. What's the big deal? Well, Paul is saying the big deal is what starts out as what one person is doing along these lines will have an impact on everyone else, just like yeast has an impact on the dough. Just like one domino hits another domino, hits another domino, hits another domino. It does have an impact. And so he says, your boasting, exalting, and promoting this sin is not good. Do you not know, this is verse 6, that a little leaven leavens the whole, whole lump of dough. So he says in verse 7, clean out, which means to purge or cleanse the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump. And so he encourages them to do something about what is going on there. Um, The basic idea is ideas have consequences. Um, That's why in Romans 12, Paul could say, 
that as Christians we're to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And then he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now think about what he's saying there. He's saying you're transformed by thinking differently and by not thinking like the world around you. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not simply embrace the thoughts, the attitudes, the standards, the culture around you. But be transformed. Transformed into what? Into the image of Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How? By thinking God's thoughts, which is what we find in the Bible. Seeing life from God's perspective. And so the idea is is that um, it does matter... um, what we think, and to embrace someone living in a, uh, a way that's com- you know, very much uh, contrary to what the Bible says is ultimately going to affect all of us. You know, there are things in our culture like critical race theory that uh, has been taught for a long time, and, and now we see the fruit of that, that there's this... Um, the races are at war with each other in a sense because of the idea that the real problem in our country is rooted in white supremacy and, and white people who don't even realize how they're oppressing everyone else. And so ideas have consequences. And Paul is arguing that you can't just be indifferent to those things and think it's not going to affect you personally. And that's why he says, as a body, uh, you need to pursue purity and protection for the body by helping this person, by loving this person in a way that they need to be loved. The fourth thing is in verses 9 through 11, he says, he basically corrects a misunderstanding. He had written them a prior letter in which he told them not to associate with immoral people. And he says that you misunderstood me when if you thought that I meant uh, that you shouldn't Uh, hang out with people who aren't Christians in the world. What I was talking about was you should not be in close relationship with people who claim to be Christians but who who, who are clearly not living like Christians. You should not do that. And so he, he gives us some categories of people. This is just representative. It's not exhaustive. But he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate. It means to mix up yourself with, keep company with, have intimate fellowship with immoral people. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous. The covetous are those who are their actions, not just their attitudes, but their actions are governed by the desire to have more. So all of these things are things that even unbelievers can see. He's not talking about hidden motives. He's talking about things that as people look at the church, they can say, how could that that guy be a deacon or an elder in that church when he is obviously, by his actions, his lifestyle, the way he runs his business or whatever, a covetous person. And in the same way, these other things, when it says uh, swindlers, those who rob, those who seize what belongs to other people, um, He talks about, obviously, those who are involved in sexual immorality. He talks about revilers, who are basically those who are abusive, verbally abusive, physically abusive, uh, sexually abusive, or whatever it might be. 
talks about drunkards. Obviously, those are those who are drinking to excess or maybe even using uh, other kinds of illicit drugs, that kind of thing. And obviously, um, all of these things are things that aren't just um, things that are heart attitudes, though it comes out of your heart. These are lifestyles that even unbelievers could say, hmm, uh, how in the world could that be a, that guy be a Christian in light of that kind of lifestyle? And all of us know that even unbelievers are quick to point out when Christians aren't acting like Christians. And so Paul is saying there, there are um, lifestyles that are clearly unchristian, even though we as Christians still sin. We sin all the time. And we still need to be forgiven. We still need God's help to grow. But there are certain kinds of sins that call into question our Christianity. And that's what Paul is talking about here are things that uh, in our lives, lifestyles that are overt, obvious, outward, behavioral kinds of things where even unbelievers could call into question our salvation. And we as the church have to be uh, aware of that as well. Well, the last thing is in uh, verses 12 through 13. He talks about the fact that it is really the loving thing for Christians to um, discipline those within their ranks. He says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Which means it's not the church's role to go around trying to discipline people who aren't Christians and aren't a part of their church. It's those who are professing believers in the local body that we're responsible for. He says, do you not judge those who are within the church? And again, judging doesn't mean condemning. It's very clear that we're not to condemn each other. We're not to um, cut cut people off, so to speak, with a hard heart and, and wish evil upon them or anything like that. But the idea of judging is, the idea of actually asking, is there anything in our lives as Christians that call into question our profession of Christ? Why would that be important? Well, we don't, we don't want someone among us in the Christian church who thinks they're okay when they're not. It's a very loving thing to tell someone there's something seriously wrong here. And I'm afraid it might say something about where your faith is. Because it's a loving thing if someone is driving toward a cliff to say, you know, I think you might be driving toward a cliff. You know, maybe we should see what road you're on. See if you're on the right road or if you're really on that road that is over the cliff. Because it kind of appears like you're on that road. Uh, so maybe let's talk about this and let's try to find out what's really going on in your heart and life and what you really think about submission to Christ and submission to his word. And are you really trusting Jesus for your happiness? And if you're trusting Jesus for your happiness, then you know why in this area do you seem to be... Um, why aren't you concerned about this? Why, why don't you seem to be fighting this? Why don't you seem to be um, con- you know, even concerned enough to ask for help? Why does this seem to be just something that is just going on and you're embracing it? And so the loving thing is actually to realize that it's 
uh, it's a good thing for us to not condemn each other, but to have some kind of accountability. Now, the tricky part about this is if you do enough reading on the topic of church discipline, you realize that historically there have been some pretty wild extremes with regard to church discipline, as much as putting people on the rack and all kinds of things historically. And so it's, it's not an easy thing to get right. How do we exercise church discipline appropriately? But we shouldn't just throw it out. Anybody who's been a parent could say, uh, exercising discipline on my kids is tricky business. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard to know exactly what to do, whether or not I should uh, spank or not, whether or not I should handle it differently, whether or not I should just acknowledge the fact that they're just tired and they need to go to bed. Anyone who's been a parent who's tried to wrestle with the issue of discipline, how to love my child, uh, can understand how it can be tricky business on a church-wide level, too, to know exactly what does it look like sometimes. And yet, if we're going to be parents who please God, we don't throw it out. And if we're going to be churches that please God, we don't just throw out the idea of discipline, but it, it encourages us to read our Bibles more closely, to pray for wisdom, and to make sure that we are seeking to love and not just seeking to condemn people. And so the implications of this very quickly is that, first of all, it's, it's tough love. And there is a place for it. There is a place for it in the church. There's a place for it in the home. There's a place for it in government. The whole idea of defunding the police is craziness. No, the government needs to discipline society members who are out of line. It's a loving thing to do. And so church discipline is, is a part of that loving thing to do as well. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Paul says, Let all that you do be done in love, which includes 1 Corinthians 5. We've mentioned parenting a lot. In Proverbs 13, it says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And so love and discipline go together. Second thing, second implication is the purpose of the discipline is for the good of the people involved, both the person who has sinned and the people around him as well. And again, in verse 5, it says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What day is that? It's the day of judgment. The reality is that every one of us here will one day stand before Jesus and our lives will be evaluated. And Paul is saying, I want that man to be prepared to meet Jesus. I want him to be forgiven and to know he's forgiven But right now, the way he's living calls into question whether or not he's even saved or not. And so, in order for him to know and to be assured that he's ready to meet Jesus, this sin needs to be addressed in his life. And so, um, you can think about stories in, in the Bible like Ananias and Sapphira, where God took their lives and he was... Reference later in 1 Corinthians, people dying because of their wrong uh, participation in the Lord's Supper. God is very concerned about the purity of the body to the point that he will even uh, take some believers home if he has to or remove people that are just professing believers and are hurting the church. 
God's very serious about this, and we need to be serious about it too, but serious in terms of love, and serious because of uh, what's going, what the significance of all these things are. The third thing is, the implication is, it's a very tailored approach. If you read other passages that talk about church discipline, in every passage it doesn't say, kick the person out. If you read in 2 Thessalonians 3, there are people there who, for whatever reason, probably for spiritual reasons, you know, Jesus is coming back, or maybe he's already come back, and we're not going to work anymore. And Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, tell those people that, and if they don't start working, then you need to don't associate with them. Don't have them over for dinner, and don't allow them to partake of the Lord's Supper. But he doesn't say kick them out of the church. He doesn't say remove uh, these people from the church. And so it depends, just like with your children. Uh, you don't spank for everything, but you don't spank for nothing either. There are some things that require more severe measures, and there are other things that just require a reproof or um, milder approaches. And so that's why we're, whether you're talking about in parenting or you're talking about um, in society or talking about in the church, it takes wisdom to know what is the tailored approach to be in dealing with people where they are because some sins are private. That's Matthew 18, and they're dealt with gradually. This sin in 1 Corinthians 5 is very public. And it was there was no Matthew 18 process here. Paul just said, you guys, kick this guy out of the church. There was no one person going to him, take two others, Tell it to the church. No, he said, no, you just, you guys get together, you declare this to be wrong, and you remove him from the fellowship. Now, you read 2 Corinthians, you find out he actually repented. And Paul said, love him and make sure he knows that he's forgiven. And so the whole goal was uh, repentance and rescue, and that, that is the purpose of it all. And so it can look different. So let me just wrap up very quickly here with just some practical applications. Um, discipline is something that all of us need to embrace, but none of us like it. Because discipline isn't pleasant. Uh, whether we're two years old or 50 years old, we don't like discipline. It's painful, it's uncomfortable, uh, it makes life hard, uh, it's just not pleasant. And it's hard to administer whether you're t- dealing with a two-year-old or you're dealing with a 50-year-old. It's hard to exercise discipline. And yet, the Bible says in, in the book of Proverbs over and over again, and there's a reason why God repeats things over and over again. It's because it's hard for us to embrace it. And the Bible in Proverbs talks a lot about discipline on all kinds of levels. It says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. He goes on to say, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. It's pretty harsh language, but it's very honest language. God doesn't want us to be stupid. Being stupid is telling, hearing someone say, you're going over the cliff. You need to stop and turn around. And us saying, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to listen to that. Uh, I don't think that's for my flourishing. I don't think that's for my happiness. 
Uh, I don't want to consider changing my ways. To be driving toward the cliff, and for someone to say, you're driving toward a cliff, that's love. But to say, don't tell me I might be doing something wrong. Don't tell me I might be doing something that would be bad for me. Don't tell me I might be doing something that's bad for other people. Don't tell me that I might be doing something that's dishonoring to God. I want to do this. And the Bible says we're all prone to do that. We're all prone to think that way. And we have to fight that by God's grace. Um, The second thing is there is a standard of uh, morality and holiness that is required for being in the church. Some people have the idea that to be a part of a church means you're holier than thou and that everybody thinks they're perfect. It's not true. But the church is supposed to be filled with people who want to please God, who want to fight sin and live in accordance with what God says is true, even though we don't ever do it perfectly, even though we fail over and over again. And so... Uh, there has to be a standard of right and wrong that isn't simply based on my feelings. It has to be based on the word of God. And then finally, the last application is something I mentioned earlier. The Lord Jesus came to save us from our sin, not to leave us in our sin. It's mentioned in here, he says in verse 7, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. So in the Old Testament, the Israelites would kill a lamb, sacrifice that lamb and celebrate. And what were they celebrating? They were celebrating the fact that God protected them from the death angel when the death angel came over and killed the firstborn children of the Egyptians. And so if they killed that lamb and they put the blood on their, over their door, then they were protected from death. They were protected from the wrath of God. And so Paul is saying... Christ is our Passover. If we're trusting ourselves into his hands, then we will escape the wrath of God. But the Passover also is a celebration of being freed from Egypt. Not only do they escape being um, killed by the death angel, but they were set free from bondage in Egypt. And so the Passover represents being set free. And Paul is saying, don't you realize that not only have you been set free from the penalty of sin, which is death, but you've been set free from the power of sin, that you might live a life that's pleasing to God. And therefore, to celebrate Christ as our Passover means that I embrace him as the key to both of those things. Well, let me just conclude with this. There's a story that I mentioned before about these pioneers who were traveling west and they came upon uh, seeing in the distance some smoke, and they realized that a, um, a prairie fire was headed their way. And you might recall in the story, someone very wisely said, uh, come with me and let's burn a patch of ground here, large enough for all of us to stand on this patch of ground. And they burned that patch of ground, and everyone in the, the um, wagon train got inside that burned patch, and one of the little children said, uh, Daddy, are we going to be okay? And the dad said, yeah, we're going to be fine because we're in a place where the fire has already burned. And so the picture of that is that Christ came, he died on a cross, and the fire of God's wrath burned upon him as our substitute. 
And if we embrace him as our Lord and as our Savior, then we are safe from the approaching fires of God's wrath. And we will not be touched by them. Because we are in a place where the fire of God's wrath has already burned. But the evidence that we are standing in that place is if we desire to please the God who sent his son to rescue us from that fire. If we don't have a heart to please that God, then it's evidence that we're not really embracing his son. But if we really want to live to please God with our lives and we take God's word seriously, then we will fight what the culture says and we will seek to honor him. And so the question for all of us is, what kind of savior do I want? Do I want a savior who just saves me from hell? Or do I want a savior who saves me from everything that dishonors God and is unloving toward people? What kind of savior do I want? If I want a savior who rescues from both the penalty and the power of sin, then we have a savior for that. His name is Jesus. And that's what we will celebrate here in just a minute. Let's pray. Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would help us to see how this applies to each of us. Father, all of us need to be encouraged to take sin seriously, to realize that you created us to be holy and happy, and that those two things go together. And and in order for us to be happy, we need to be holy. We need to be forgiven of our sins, and we need to uh, seek to live to please you. And so I pray, Father, for every single person here this morning that you would grant them the grace to desire and rest in you, Lord Jesus, as a Savior from sin, from its penalty and from its power, and that they would entrust themselves to you. And for those of us who've already done that, may we be renewed in our heart to see that you are a good, good God who desires our true happiness and therefore takes sin very, very seriously. And as we celebrate this Lord's Supper, may we celebrate you as the God who has our good at heart and who gave his son that we might be set free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.